So this morning we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 through 20. Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 20. And I'm going to do my best not to go uh, over my allotted time. Um, I told Brian last week that it would be the last time this year that I would do that, and this is a new year, so I've, I've got one more chance this year, so I don't want to blow it too soon. Yes, I am assuming a lot. <laughs> uh, Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 through 20. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and all one's labor, to which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life, which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the goodness of his heart. That's the end of chapter 5. Now this morning we're going to be looking at the second part of chapter 5, which is the theme of oppression and profit, and those two are linked often, um, as well as another exhortation here by Solomon uh, to find contentment in this life, and that is a theme throughout all of Ecclesiastes, is to find contentment in God's providence. Now Solomon has already touched upon this theme once before, this theme of oppression. Uh, previously in chapter 3, uh, he discussed the oppression through the lens of present reality. And if you remember there in that chapter, Solomon was speaking about God's providence and how God is the God of all creation and that he ordains everything that comes to pass and that chapter really emphasizes that there is an appointed time for everything that nothing lies outside of the purview of, of God's providence and that it is a very wise and holy and good providence and he says in that chapter that there is an, an appointed time to live and to die to plant and to uproot 
a time for war and peace and so forth. And he concluded that God has made everything appropriate in its time, meaning fitting or beautiful in its time. Now, not everything to us looks beautiful in its time, but in God's providence, everything is fitting or, or beautiful or perfect for that moment of time because he has decreed it. But then he talked about the present reality of things. If God is uh, who we say he is, if he is the God who declares everything from the beginning to the end, which he is, how are we to think, what are we to think about the way that life is now, this present reality where, where there's so much wickedness, where there's injustice, where there should be justice, and unrighteousness where we should find righteousness? How are we to think of these things? And that's really what he deals with there in that third chapter. And Solomon really brings out two points there in that chapter, that God is indeed sovereign over everything, that nothing happens outside of the will of God, but also that no one escapes justice in the end, that everyone will get his due uh, reward for wickedness. For a while the wicked may prosper, the wicked may flaunt over those who are righteous. They may succeed for a little while. They may even prevail in this life. But ultimately, they will stand before the judge. And that is Solomon's uh, exhortation there in that passage that no one is going to escape judgment or uh, escape their wage, which is... Uh, death and punishment for wickedness. There will be no escape for those who oppress the, the righteous or the poor. And God is the one who will deal out to each man what he's earned. And I don't know if you remember, uh, if you were here and you heard uh, Larry preach about the poor a few weeks ago, uh, he, he said that there are many types of poor, and two are poor in spirit and poor by oppression. And the point is that God has the backs of those who are poor in spirit and poor who are oppressed. He hates those who oppress widows and orphans and those who delight in this triumph of wickedness. God hates those who do that, who oppress the, the righteous. And he is the great vindicator of the righteous and of the poor. Well, today in our text, we go back to this topic of oppression again. Oppression can come in many forms, and we know that to be the case, but it's almost always birthed out of tyranny. That is, someone taking authority for himself, authority that God has not given him. See, when you're being godly, it's hard to be tyrannical because you're doing what God says you should do. But it's when you become a law to yourself, that's when oppression occurs. And this sort of tyranny can happen in families by the father who imposes harsh and unbiblical restrictions on his family, or he's just harsh in general with his wife and with his kids. Church magistrates can be tyrants by improperly exercising their authority and laying upon uh, the sheep what God has not laid upon them. Uh, civil magistrates can become tyrants by creating laws that are contrary to God's law and manda mandate arbitrary laws upon the people. 
CEOs, presidents of universities, basically any position that has authority attached to it can breed tyrants who oppress those around them. So looking at our text this morning, we're going to be talking about oppression and profit. And those two are linked because one of the main motivations for tyranny often is profit. So looking at our text here in verse 8, it says, If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight, for one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. So here you, you, Solomon notes that if you see oppression, you shouldn't be shocked. This shouldn't be something that comes as, as a surprise. But it often does surprise us, doesn't it? When we see such wickedness uh, where there should be righteousness, we think, what are they thinking? Why are they doing this? Why are they doing this unrighteous act? Here Solomon says this should not surprise us in the least. It's not something that should take us by surprise. In fact, it should be expected. When justice and righteousness is denied, there's no reason to be shocked that people become oppressed. And history will time and time again bear that out. When, when righteousness and justice is perverted, often the righteous is oppressed and the poor is oppressed for the gain of those in charge. And in chapter 4, Solomon compared men to beasts and not in the ontological sense, not saying that there's no difference between your dog at home and you. There is clearly a difference. You're made in the image of God. But often men act more like the dog at home than his creator. We're made in the image of God, but we act as if we're not. We act in a way that is vicious toward one another. We consume one another. We reject one another. And we do all these things toward each other. We fail to be compassionate because it's, it has somehow escaped uh, who we ought to be. We, we ought to be compassionate, but we're no longer compassionate. And humans do seek their own interests, and they do what's right in their own eyes. And I could quote Romans 1, actually, I think, in every lecture of this, uh, of Ecclesiastes. But Romans 1 really bears that out, that everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Everyone does what he or she wants to do, and that will always lead to some sort of oppression. Thus, when one person grows in power, the ability for that person to, to seek what he wants most comes at the expense of those around him. That you get more power, that person has more opportunity to seek that power or to seek whatever it is he desires, and those around him will be oppressed because of that wickedness. Now, Jay Adams writes in uh, his book on Ecclesiastes, he says, What more should he expect from people who live for this world and the things in it? Now, that's a good question. What should we expect from people who live to gain everything in this world? Should we expect justice and righteousness to come from such a person? No, the, it's, it's impossible because he's not laying up uh, the word of God in his heart, right? He, he knows nothing of Christ. All he knows is uh, of, of gain in this world. So he'll do anything that he wants to for that gain. I mean, w what is the limiting factor for such a man? Now, we know this is God's world, but someone who's living as if it's not 
he lives as his own law and he does whatever he wants to. So where is that limiting factor in his, in his mind? There isn't one. Should we expect more from those who govern themselves by their own authority and desire the fleeting things in this world? As I've already said, no, we shouldn't expect more, than that, more from them. What ought we expect if not tyranny or oppression? We should not expect justice or righteousness because it's not in their vocabulary. They have denied the, the highest court of all, which is the courts of heaven and God's word. And when men go their own way, they become a law unto themselves. They forsake freedom. They become tyrants, and their rule is heavy and burdensome. And Solomon tells us that this is to be expected. This isn't something that should shock us. We should expect this when God's word is denied, when uh, evil uh, comes about in the hearts of these rulers. This is something we should expect. But it should be a great comfort that no matter how wicked that ruler may be, there is one who is over him, one who holds the highest authority and will exact justice. And this, again, was the theme of uh, Ecclesiastes 3, that no one will escape their due, and that includes rulers. There's no second standard for those who rule on this earth versus the, the janitor who sweeps the floors at a school. Everyone is under the same law, and no one will escape justice. Really, government is supposed to be a good thing. It's not supposed to be a bad thing. It's supposed to be a good thing. God instituted government to uphold what is good and to punish evildoers, and that's recorded in Romans 13. It's really an account of how governors are supposed to be. They're supposed to be a punishment of evildoers. Evildoers are supposed to look at the, the good ruler and think, I shouldn't be doing evil because he's a good ruler and he will punish me for that. He should uphold what is good. And we're told there in Romans 13 that, that those who are placed in authority are supposed to be an avenger of the righteous. His face is to be set against those who do evil. Now there are many rulers who do nothing but evil, and we know that. And God has placed them in authority. However, that does not mean that God wants rulers to be evil. God desires no one to delight in their wickedness. In actuality, the reason so many rulers are evil is because the people are evil. We have evil rulers because we have evil people. And the reason that we have evil people is because the gospel has been diminished. It's not preached as it ought to be. It's not declared from the rooftops. So if, if the hearts of the people are wicked and we live in a, a society in a, a nation that elects our own officials, evil people elect evil rulers. So what's the, what's the cure to uh, evil rulers? Preach the gospel to evil people so that they will be regenerated and that they will elect godly rulers. But human government is not supposed to be a tool for oppression, but a safeguard for the orphan, and for the widow, and for the righteous. It ought to be a good thing. Solomon continues in verse 9. He says, After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. So Solomon says a king 
who cultivates the field is an advantage. One commentator noted on this text, and it's a little bit long of a, of a quotation, says, the image evoked is that just rule would facilitate plowed fields throughout the land so that all can benefit from the fruit of the earth. The land should be for all, and the king should facilitate justice. But the tone here is ironic. The corrupt power relations have spread to the top of the tree and offer no hope for justice of the oppressed. Land and its just distribution are central to the Old Testament law. And in an agricultural context, one's survival depends on having one's own land to cultivate. The principle of equitable land distribution is powerfully portrayed in the unbiblical robbing of Naboth's vineyard by King Ahab in 1 Kings 21. This sort of robbery was presumably rampant in Solomon's day, end quote. So what he's really saying here is that the ruler is supposed to be good for the land. It's supposed to be good for the people. He's supposed to cultivate, and he's supposed to to do good for the people and for the land, but the note here is quite ironic because in Solomon's day, that wasn't the case at all. It was quite the opposite. The king is supposed to be good. So the good king ought to be concerned with the earth and with his kingship, with being a blessing and not a curse. He should be a blessing. But all too often, he becomes a law to himself. He perverts justice and righteousness, and he becomes a burden to the people and a burden to the land. Instead of cultivating fields for the good of his kingdom, he robs and he plunders and he takes what belongs, what does not belong to him, but he thinks belongs to him. So you have this idea of the king should be a good king, but in fact, he's a curse because he's wicked and because he, he plunders the people and he destroys the land. Moving on to verses 10 and 11, Solomon somewhat switches topics to profit and the accumulation of wealth, but it really, it is a, a switching of topics, but he links it directly to the wickedness, to those who are oppressed and the oppressors. This isn't as drastic as a, of a change as, as you may think. One of the major driving motivators for tyranny and the oppression of, of the poor or of the righteous is wealth. He says, starting in verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on. So Solomon is certainly qualified to speak of wealth, isn't he? If anyone can speak of wealth, it would be Solomon. In 2 Chronicles 9, verses 13 through 29, I'm not going to read all of that, but that, that chapter speaks of the, the wealth and the, the power of Solomon, everything that Solomon had at the height of his, his power. And it's said in that chapter that his throne was made of ivory and overlaid with pure gold. Now, he had a footstool of gold, and he had 12 lions standing around the throne, which I don't think I would want that, but to each his own, I guess. 
he had drinking cups of pure gold. He had ships that brought him gold and silver. He had ivory and apes and peacocks. Now think about that. That all sounds just wildly absurd, right? But he, he had literally everything. His wealth was so great, it's kind of hard to fathom how great that wealth was. But here he writes that those who love money can never be satisfied with money, or he who loves abundance with its income. Now, if you remember Paul's first letter to Timothy in chapter 6, he exhorts Timothy to be content in the Lord's providence. And that message of Paul is similar, if not the same, as here in Ecclesiastes. Uh, this uh, message to Timothy is a, is a message that we've heard from Solomon. But Paul warns with a verse that you've all heard, and is often misquoted, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, what's a great example of that in the New Testament of someone being a lover of money and falling away and running headlong? Judas, right? Judas, the betrayer of our Lord, was a lover of money, and his soul was ruined by that love of money. But Paul warns against seeking to become rich because it leads, to, it leads a person into all sorts of sorrows and wickedness. And just the, the previous verse in 1 Timothy, verse 9, Paul says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. And many foolish and harmful desires will plunge people into ruin and destruction. Well, he doesn't mince words. He tells you straightforwardly, if you are a lover of money, if you chase money, if money is your pleasure and passion and your purpose in this life, you will be plunged into ruin and destruction. It cannot fulfill. It cannot save you. There is a difference between those who become rich by their labors and those who seek to be rich because of their love for money. And I think it's, it's the latter that's in mind in this passage. And of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has already advised us to be balanced in life. And remember his great illustration, do not have two hands full of labor and no hand of rest. And the opposite is true. Don't have two hands of rest and no hand for, for labor. Don't be a sluggard and don't be a workaholic. Rather, work hard and enjoy what God has given you. He exhorts us to be balanced in life. And those who seek to increase their wealth will often become a pain to those around them and they will fall headlong into ruin and destruction. And if they are in any place of authority, they will be a tyrant. They will plunder. So Solomon continues in verses 12 through 13. He says, The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. Working for a wage is an honorable thing, isn't it? Is it honorable to work for a wage? It is. We're commanded to work. Work was instituted before the fall. Work is a good and necessary thing. How many of you, after a hard day's work, have went home and slept like a baby? All of us, right? If we expend ourselves, 
We go inside and we'll fall asleep. We may not even make it to the bed, fall asleep on the recliner in the living room as soon as we sit down and take our shoes off. Maybe you didn't make as much money as you'd hoped that day. Maybe you didn't eat as much as you wanted to eat. But that hard labor kept you slumbering throughout the night, kept you asleep. You slept well. The Bible places a, a great emphasis on the goodness of being able to sleep. Sleep is a, a good thing. Sleep is being able to not take with you the anxieties of the day or the frustrations of the day and just sleep and rest. And it's, it's often, it, it is the most vulnerable times of our lives that really when we sleep, we, we expect God to watch over us because we're asleep and ultimately helpless. But sleep is a good thing. You're not worried up all night thinking about various things. You can just sleep. Your body can rest and can prepare for the next day. Well, the comparison made here is between a man who doesn't have much money, but what he does have was earned by the sweat of his brow. It was hard-earned money. It was a good thing that he did. It was well-earned. And that man was able to sleep at night because he labored well for his money. No matter how much money he got, he labored well for that amount of money. And he was able to sleep. But the rich man has a full stomach and he can't sleep. That's the, uh, the other side. This rich man has built up enough wealth to have his money make money for him or people who make money for him. Now, he's not lacking in life. He has whatever he wants, yet he can't sleep because he hasn't placed forth much effort maybe recently into making it. He's not worn himself out. He can't sleep. He's full with all the things that he has, but he's restless. And he's probably has a guilty conscience based on the way he got his money. Who knows? But, but these are the, the things that Solomon puts forth here. And really, these two are the, the opposite of one another. He is not at the point where he can rest, but he's plagued all night by worries and anxieties. Solomon calls this a grievous evil. In this case, hoarding money has placed a great hurt upon the man because it has ultimately robbed him of his sleep. Now, you may be rich, but you've been robbed of your sleep. So he can't sleep. And continuing on in verses 14 through 15, so, uh, Solomon says, When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what, did, what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Uh, now most of the commentators I read on verse 14 took bad, bad investment to be an evil investment. When we hear uh, the term a bad investment, I think most of us wouldn't necessarily think of something that is evil, like it is an, an evil investment, only that it's an investment that may lose money or may at least not make you money, right? When we think of something that's a bad investment, we typically think it's like, well, you know, you could put your money in this, but you, you just may lose it, not necessarily that it's an evil endeavor. 
But here it, it makes more sense that it would be a, an evil investment. Uh, as almost every commentator I read said that this is an evil investment. Um, that is an investment that is uh, nefarious or wicked because he's talking about oppression of the people, right? So he's saying this person has invested, it's an evil investment, and it's in the context of oppression. So this is something that was nefarious, something that was meant to do great wicked, and he was gaining money uh, by a wicked end. And he was hoping for a massive turn on his investment, uh, possibly or probably at the hands of those who are oppressed. So this is an evil investment meant to satisfy himself and to increase his own wealth at the expense of those around him. And because the father here in this passage intends to do evil with his money, he will lose it before he can give it to his son. So he works to do evil. He tries to multiply his money by wicked gain. And Solomon says before he can give it to anyone, he will lose it. That is to say that his wickedness, the father's wickedness, will not be a reward for him or his son, that he will lose it all. And what he has will ev eventually be taken away by providence. So imagine storing up all the riches in this world, living for the, the next dollar, for really chasing after the things of this world, for chasing after money, for getting your bank account one dollar bigger, and being willing to do anything you can do to get it, only to lose it all before you can leave it as an inheritance. Well, that's a sore pain, isn't it? Doing anything you can, you grow this massive amount of, uh, of wealth, and then before you can leave it to anyone, before you can enjoy it yourself, before you can leave it to your children, it's lost because you've gained it wickedly. All of it amounts to nothing. Now we know that they, there are those who for a time do amass great amounts of wealth. And for a time they don't lose it. They continue to, to gain wealth. But we do live in God's world. This isn't by chance. And we do know that God governs the world now, it seems like Solomon is saying that for a time, a man can get away with nefarious dealings with money, but over the course of time, he will lose it all. may not be in his generation, but maybe in the next. Solomon really gives the same warning as the First Timothy passage that I just mentioned, that you came into the world with nothing and you leave with nothing. You come into the world not... You don't have clothes, you don't have money, you don't have anything. And that's how you will leave this world. And many have tried and even believed that material gain mattered to the spiritual world. When I was a kid, I was enamored with Egypt, right? With reading all these books about the pharaohs and their great wealth, and there was always a, a mystery about them, which growing up is not a very good mystery. But they... Um, they, they would build these great pyramids and these great temples and these, these great places to, to lay their pharaohs. And they would bury all the wealth of the pharaoh 
with the Pharaoh for use in the next life. They've put a great emphasis on material wealth in the spiritual realm. But do you know what, if you were to go right now, if you were to go and buy a plane ticket to Egypt, you flew to Egypt, and you were privileged enough to go into one of these uh, tombs, and you were to look around, you would see the, the tomb of Pharaoh there. You know what you'd still see there? Every bit of the wealth, every bit of the treasure, because it did not go with them. It stayed rotting in a tomb. That their great emphasis of material wealth in the spiritual realm was bankrupt. The Pharaoh is no longer there, but their stuff is idly sitting there. Left behind, useful for nothing. It's just, it's rotting in a tomb. So there is no advantage in this. And it is all vanity. Those who seek to make much of their wealth here is endeavoring in a, in a vain cause. In verse 17, Solomon notes that a man who is a tyrant and a man who seeks to store up riches is a man who, throughout his life, he also eats in darkness and with great vexation, sickness, and anger. That sounds pretty horrendous. The wicked man mentioned by Solomon really deals with the same things that all of us do, to some extent. We deal with sickness. The rich man deals with sickness. We deal with sorrows. The rich man deals with sorrows. We die. The rich man dies. See, his money does not avail him or, or give him a, a leg up over the curse. Your bank account does not give you a leg up over the curse. He is still subject to sin and misery in this life. But even the money itself that he was worked to amass has become a curse to him. He is enslaved by it, he's consumed by it, and it will be his undoing. He will oppress the people around him who he says he loves. If he's in a place of authority, he will oppress the people whom he's supposed to lead and to serve. And he cannot find any lasting peace. It says he eats in darkness. When I, when I read that, I thought of eating by yourself, right? You're, you're alone that you're such a man who has driven everyone away because of your wickedness. You may have everything in this world, monetarily speaking, but it, can, it comes at the expense of being hated and despised. Now this is quite different from the blessed man mentioned in Psalm 1 or Matthew 5, isn't it? Radically different. Although the blessed man Although we face sorrows, sickness, and death, we ultimately prevail. Why do we prevail? Do we prevail because of our income? No. We prevail because our only comfort in life and death is, as the Heidelberg Confession puts it, that I am not my own, that I belong, body and soul, and life and death to my Savior, Jesus Christ. The difference really is purpose and intention. One man, his purpose in life and death, body and soul, is to store up riches by any means necessary. The blessed man, he belongs, body and soul, in life and death, to the faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And though trials come upon both the righteous and the wicked, such trials are for the good of those who are called by God. That the blessed man, every trial that he ever receives is for his good, so that he will grow to be more like Christ. Now the trials upon the wicked man, somewhat twofold, it's meant to show him, continually show him, the need for a Savior. These trials meant to point to the one who can fulfill, as Solomon has talked about all throughout Ecclesiastes. But ultimately, these trials really are just punishments. That, that it is a person who is uh, receiving what he has sowed. So Solomon concludes, as he has time and time again, with an exhortation where to find lasting peace and contentment. And as I said, we're going to see this over and over and over again throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. He's going to talk about these, these vain pursuits and passions. And then he's going to re reorient the listener to where he can find peace and contentment. He says, starting in verse 18, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and all one's labor, in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Now, isn't that beautiful? Instead of being consumed with the passions and fleeting pleasures of this world, God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. That to live in a way that is God-honoring is gladdening to the heart. And that every other endeavor that we may chase in this life that is not to that end is empty and is vain and, and is bankrupt. It is not fulfilling. And, and, he, and he says that every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them. So God is the one who gives, right? God is the one who takes away. God is the one who gives riches to men. Some men receive those as gifts, and they thank God, and they're, they're glad for them, they're, and they, they're really stewards of them. Instead of being hoarders, they, they do good with what God has given them. But then the opposite, of course, is storing up riches to, to be thought much of, to act as a little God himself. All right, that's the, that's the true, true difference between the two. But Solomon again warns or exhorts us that what is good and fitting, he's already talked about what is evil and wicked, the bad life. If you want to live the bad life, store up riches for yourself and at the expense of those around you. But if, if you want a good life, and it's good to want a good life, eat, drink, and enjoy oneself. Labor, as God has created you to labor, and enjoy what God has given. Every little thing, not just the big triumphs in life, but every little thing. The fact that you can wake up this morning, come to church, have coffee before you come to church, that's a good thing. I'm very thankful. All these little things that we can do every day that may become mundane or, you know, as much, I'll talk about coffee a lot because I love it. As much as I love to drink coffee, there are mornings I'm like, oh, I have to go make it. You know, and I'm just like 
dreading it. The very thing I love has become a curse, right? So, but, it, but the point is to enjoy the very little things in life that even though they become, they become so routine and can even sometimes irritate us, that those are the gifts that God has given us, that, that we're able to get up in the morning, we're able to read our Bible, we're able to come to church, we're able to eat, we're able to fellowship. All these things are blessed things. So we're going to again see this, almost this exact same passage, uh, but applied to a different, a different pursuit. But Solomon again and again is going to say, reorient us to eat and drink and enjoy God's blessings and be content in God's providence. So... I think I'm on time. I'm not sure. We have any questions? Nope. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you've given us. We thank you for uh, maintaining us, sustaining us, for allowing us to, uh, to breathe and to move and to, to wake up and come to church and hear your word. Uh, all these things we do on a weekly basis and uh, we pray that they would not become routine or mundane, but that we would see them as uh, meeting before you in the presence of the Holy One. We pray that you would humble our hearts, knowing that we came into this world with nothing, we will leave with nothing, and that we ought to be content in your mercies. Now we ask that you would prepare our hearts for worship, help us to store up the riches of your word, uh, to impress them on our hearts, and to... Uh, to to live in light of those. In Christ's name we pray, amen.